If you have your copies of God's Word, we will um, get started and walk through it here. We're going to be in Acts chapter 23, 12 through 35. I want to congratulate the few, the brave, and the strong who came out this morning. And uh, it's good to see all of your faces here. And we're going to pick up in verse 12. And when it was day, remember the context, Paul is in one giant mess at this time. He is beaten, he is bruised, and he has been treated poorly. And when it was day, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under an oath saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. Clearly, none of the Sanhedrin had any Baptist roots whatsoever here. You following me there? Because we like potlucks. Let's move forward. There were more than 40 who formed this plot. And they came to the chief priest, Ananias, who was very corrupt, and the elders and said, "We, we have bound ourselves out of a solemn oath to taste nothing until we have killed Paul. Now he's going to bring up the oath three times because they're pretty proud of this oath. Now therefore... You and the council notify the Roman commander to bring Paul down to us as though you're going to determine his case by more thorough investigation. And we, for our part, will be ready to kill him before he even gets to this place. But the son of Paul's sister, can you summarize that for me? Who would be the son of Paul's sister? His nephew. Heard of the ambush. Why is that funny? The daughter? You signed up for membership, didn't you? Maybe another six months would be good. I just, just, just saying, no. But Paul's nephew, since it's a son, if you see there in the text, I know we live in a very complicated day and age. And who are we to say it's a nephew? Did I just get political there? No, I got biblical there. That's a, oh, deal with it. Again, email is Jason at TBCGR. And he came and entered the barracks, barracks, barracks. It's going to be a long day. We have the kids with us. Mommy. And he told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, lead this young man, all right, to the commander, for he has something to report to him. So he took him and he led him to the commander. And he said, Paul, the prisoner called me to him and asked me to lead this young man to you since he has something to tell you. And the commander took the nephew by the hand and stepping aside, began to inquire of him privately. What is it that you have to report to me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down tomorrow to the council as though they are going to inquire somewhat more thoroughly about him. But do not listen to them for more than 40 of them are lying in wait and have bound themselves under a curse, under an oath. Third time we see this, not to eat or drink until they slay him. And now they are wedding, ready, wedding. They're going to have a wedding. They are ready and waiting for the prom for the promise from you. 
Mm. So the commander let the young man go, instructing him, don't tell anyone what you've notified me of these things. So they called two centurions and said, get 200 soldiers ready in the third hour of night and proceed to Caesarea with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. By the way, I also want you to provide a mount or a horse for Paul and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter having uh, this kind of form, Claudius, the most excellent governor of Felix, greetings. When, when this man was arrested by the Jews and was brought out to be slain by them, I came up to them with the troops and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman and wanting to ascertain the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council and found him to be accused over a question about the law, but under no accusation deserving death or imprisonment. When I was informed that they were going to have a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, instructing his accusers to bring charges against him before you. So the soldiers, in accordance to the orders that they had received, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris, Antipatris, thank you for whoever gave this to me, and you know who you are. They brought him to this town. What verse am I in? This will be the longest message ever. And they returned to the barracks. When these had come to Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and also presented Paul to them. When they had read it, he asked from what providence Paul was from. And when they had learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing after your accusers have arrived, giving orders for him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. And with that, let's ask God's blessing. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity on this snowy day to gather around your word. Father, I pray that your your children would hear it, would receive it. And Father, that collectively we would head in the same direction, doctrinally and theologically, because it is through right belief that we live rightly. May it renew our minds and change our behavior. Lord, I have a splitting headache. I ask that you would give me the necessary mental ability to not draw attention to myself, but attention to you. We love you. You are our God. We serve none other. And so, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us. And it's in your precious and holy name we pray. Amen. The passage that we are about to study contains absolutely no biblical doctrine. There it is. Huh? Contains no biblical doctrine, no, no exhortations, no commands from God. It's just one fast-paced episode of 24. Or for those of you who do not know, uh, the, 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 what is that called? The program 24, one fast-paced episode of law in order. How many here, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of the words law and order, the TV program? What comes to your mind? Dum-dum. That's exactly right. I should have named it that. So why is it here? 
in how are we to interpret and apply this section of Scripture. And why is he here if it doesn't contain any doctrine or instructions? Well, the answer is found in verse 11 in this chapter, which was the previous verse where we started up here. The governing verse that tells us all that we are about to read and see and why it is here is verse 11, and it says this, The Lord stood near to Paul and said, Linda, what did he say? Say it in Greek. Tharse. Linda, you're digging through your purse. The look of panic on your face was priceless. He said to Paul, Tharse, be courageous, be strong. For as you have testified your truth to me in Jerusalem, I promise you, you're going to Rome as well. That is the governing verse of everything that we're about to see here. These next verses are about how God accomplishes this promise through his providential control of circumstances. Let me say that again, his providential control of circumstances. You see, God works primarily in two different ways in our lives. The, the first way we see here is, is providentially, or it is through miraculous working in our lives. So we're going to look at the, 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 the latter first. There are times in the Bible when God works miraculously in the lives of his children. And by miraculously, what I mean here is that God suspends um, and divinely works outside the scientific laws of nature. We know what miracles are. That we're talking about the parting of the Red Sea, turning water into wine, cleansing lepers, healing the lame, and on and on the miracles go. But often, and especially more today, and this is just an observable truth, oftentimes, and especially more today, Today, then in Bible times, God has chosen to work providentially in our lives. Now, let me be clear. God can and will do what pleases him and brings glory to his name. I believe God can and will perform miracles in people's lives. But there seems to be a pattern, and this pattern is true in your own life. And it is in my life as well. A pattern in Scripture that can't be ignored. That the further we get away from the life of Christ, the further we get away from earthly, uh, his earthly ministry and the completion of the Word of God, we see that God works in the lives of his children more and more providentially. We see more providence than we do miracles. And this is true for all of you in your lives. Very rarely does someone come up to me and say, every detail of my life was a, was a miracle today. Now, we may see it that way, but providentially, God is working. So why do I bring this up? Because God gave Paul a promise and he will, that he will go to Rome. We see that in verse 11. It's right up there on the screen. So the question is, how will God accomplish this promise? How will God do it? Will he throw open the prison doors like he did previous uh, areas in Acts? Nope. Will angels lift him out and fly him out of the scenario? The answer is what, church? No. Will, will laser beams from heaven come down and strategically strike each Roman soldier so that Paul can just walk out miraculously? The answer is what, church? No. How will God accomplish this promise. The same way he often accomplishes promises in our lives. Take a look at this. How will God accomplish this? Here it is. Take a look at the screen. By putting Paul's nephew in the right place at the right time. Paul's nephew, write that down, all right, in the right place at the right time. 
Jesus will accomplish us through his providential care. So before we go any further, let's make sure we understand what this means. I've read many definitions this week, and I've collected them, and I've put them in a pot, and I boiled them in my brain, and this is what I came up with. So let's hit it here. The providential work of God could be defined as this. God is constantly and intimately governing all things inside the scientific laws, both good things and bad things, by directing them according to his will and pleasure. And there's some scripture there for you. An example of this in the Bible is when the Lord said, go ahead and find some money in the fish's mouth. Maybe there's a ram in the thicket. Maybe you can get fed by the food in the, in the fields. Or in this context, that the nephew is saving the day. So with this in mind, let's look at the text that teaches no clear doctrine, that offers no commands, but shows us the providential sovereign power of God. Because while God may choose to exercise miraculous care in our lives, we will find that he often uses his providence most often. So let's take a look at this here. It says here, the Jews formed a conspiracy saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. Let us remember that Paul's life is an absolute hot mess right now. He went to Jerusalem, did not go well. Gave a love offering, did not go well. Got involved in a scheme to bring unity in the church, it did not go well. The Jews beat him from an inch of his life, that didn't go well. He's arrested by Rome and strapped up to be to be flogged and whipped, that did not go well. Then he was put back in front of some makeshift Sanhedrin and he was punched in the face by a man now dead. I'm sorry, I don't know where that came from, but that's just for my son. And you know where that comes from. He's punched in the face. His life is an absolute hot mess. Now, the first thing we need to see here is that God will use the hate of evil men. God will use the hate of evil men to accomplish his will. He will use a bad thing, an evil thing, for good. And take a look at this. They put themselves under an oath. These men hated Paul so much, they bound themselves to an oath. Uh, Kent Hughes describes it like this. They anathematized themselves with an anathema, which is a fancy way to say they cursed themselves with a curse. In fact, they are so full of hatred that this oath is brought up three times alone in this passage. Now, I want to part from the main trail of this text briefly. We'll come right back to it. But I want to part briefly from the main path of this text to point out maybe a peripheral truth in this passage. Such an oath was a religious act, by the way. We need to grab that. This is a religious act by these men going to the Sanhedrin. They engage in extreme fasting in order to show their zeal for God. They, they, they engage in, in extreme fasting to show their zeal for God. Let us remember that this plot did not come from the heathen lost. It did not come from Gentile nations. Here's where it came from. Highly religious people. Highly religious people are making an oath to God to murder someone. Does anyone see a conflict of interest here at all? Talk to me. Of course we do. They'd make an oath before God to violate God's will. They make an oath before God to violate 
God's will. To lie, deceive, break the law of Moses, to plot and to murder. Just like with Jesus, so it is with Paul. Those who are most opposed to the clear teaching of Christ. Those who are most opposed to the clear teaching of Christ are often those who are highly religious. Because it affects a culture. It affects a culture. A desire. I want to speak to those who serve and lead in a church setting. My friends, don't be surprised when those who are your strongest critics come from within the church rather than outside the church. Rather than from outside of it. Sometimes we confuse religion with relationship. I, call, I had a call this week from a couple in Indiana who wanted to just kind of talk through some theological conflict that was happening in their, their church because nothing warms the heart of the pastor than to deal with some church's conflict in Indiana when he's got his own conflict here in Michigan. Can I get a witness here at all? You guys know this feeling. It's like, oh, God, yes, I would love to engage in that in which I don't belong. But I was happy to talk with them. We had a good time, and they had some theological questions they wanted to talk about, and we, and we did. And I, I ended with a loving exhortation before we got off. I said, listen, there are going to be people in the church that call themselves godly who call themselves very religious as followers of Jesus, but they follow Jesus to the extent that he meets their needs. They will follow Jesus to the point in which he meets their needs. And then they will violate God's word in order to defend the things that they have placed around Jesus. Make sure that you are more zealous for Christ than you are the needs and the desires that you have placed around Christ. My friends, if we are willing to disobey the word of God, if we are willing to disobey Jesus in order to maintain our desires and our needs as religious as they may be, that is a clear sign of religion that uses Jesus rather than a relationship that loves him. God's word must be our authority, not our comfort and not our positions. And I will say this until the day I draw my last breath here at Trinity. One of the most uncomfortable things, one of the most progressive things we will ever do here at Trinity is allow God's word to be our authority. So moving forward back on the path, there's more than 40 of these guys. There it is in the salmon color. There's more than 40 of them that form this plot. So it must be a good thing, right? Because truth is found in numbers. Now, it's important to understand these are zealots. Simon was a zealot, former zealot, when he became one of the 12 disciples. Their nickname was Dagerman. One of the reasons they were given the name Dagerman is because they would carry a, a knife in their cloak and they, they would come up to anyone who opposed the identity of Israel. And in the name of God, they would stab them, put the dagger back into their cloak and disappear into the crowds. And that's where they got their name from. There's 40 of these zealots 40 of these dagger men, people who would murder anyone who threatened the identity and the autonomy of Israel and Judaism. Now, I want you to grab the word dagger men because we are going to see the providence of God continue to unfold. In fact, this whole passage is all about God orchestrating every little detail for his glory, even when life is an absolute mess. So grab that word dagger men, and let's move forward from here. And they said, we will taste nothing until Paul is dead and killed. Now, 
the natural question that comes up to my mind, and maybe it comes up to your mind, I'm a little bit of a nerd, but this is the question that comes to my mind. Does that mean that all 40 of these men are going to die of starvation and thirst? Because we know Paul gets away. So are they going to sit there in Jerusalem and just, oh, and die to de- die of starvation? Well, the answer is, what's so funny over there? Die to death? I, what's that? So it's not what I said. So you were in error. Okay. No, I'm just Die of starvation and thirst. The answer here, by the way, is no. Now, this is a really neat detail here. Okay, so grab this. Because it's really nerdy, so that makes it good. Are they going to die of, of starvation? So just for kicks and giggles here, let me add this in here. One could escape such a vow. One could escape such a oath if it became unfulfillable. We find that within the Mishnah. These were considered vows of exaggeration, vows of exhortation. Here's a quote from the Mishnah, which is a record of oral law that Jews put together around the Mosaic law. So these are the, this is who we are and how we do it book, all right? It says this, vows that use exaggerated language for the purpose of bargaining. What is going on here? Bring him in, we'll kill him. For the purpose of bargaining and obtaining an outcome, it's what they want, can be resolved, dissolved, without the requirement of requesting halakhic authority. Halakhic just means a Jewish authority. Now, let me be clear. These men who are full of hate, these men who are full of passion, knowingly use exaggerated language in order to get an outcome they know that will not have to cost them very much. Here's the question here. Does this ever happen in religious circles today? Where religious people will use strong, passionate, even threatening language to achieve demands knowing it will cost them nothing if they don't get it. Of course we do. Of course we do. Here it is. Power and passion and authority is easily spoken when there is no responsibility attached to it. When no responsibility is attached to it. I often want to say to people, how does it feel to know all of the answers and have none of the responsibility? Let me put it this way. This is the first tweet ever found in the word of God. Are you following me? Where you can just put it out there. And if it doesn't happen, ignore it or delete it. I love this here. I will die of starvation before I let Paul live. Hashtag my truth. How many here are old enough to remember when that was the pound sign? Anyone at all? Where you send out a passionate know-it-all demand and have all the answers without any accountability, without any repercussions. This is the first, by the way, here it is, here it is, grab this. This is the first keyboard warrior in the Word of God. We could go further, but let's stick to the providential care of God here. So with that going on, it says this. But the son of Paul's sister, his nephew, heard about the ambush. Nothing shows the power and providential care of God more than to use a nephew. Can I get a witness there? Are you following me here? How many here have ever said, my nephew saved the day? Anyone at all ever have that? 
I mean, all of us can understand finding money in the mouth of a fish to pay temple tax, sure. Maybe casting your nets on the other side and almost being pulled in by the amount of fish that you catch, sure. Maybe using a boy's lunch to feed 5,000 men, sure. God can use many things providentially, but a nephew? As I was reading this this week, I started to think about some of my nephews. Of which I'm a nephew as well, all right? Not long ago, one of my nephews was running through the church as fast as he could. And rather than looking where he was going, he decided that while running as fast as he could in the church, he would look down just to see how fast his feet were moving as he ran. And in doing so, he ran into a wall and had to be rushed to urgent care. By the way, this is the pageant side of the family, all right? If someone came to me and said, Brett, your nephew has saved the day, I would know that God's power and sovereignty was on full display. (laughs) I love my nephews. But if God can use a nephew, are not the mountains pebbles in his hands? I love this here. Imagine what Paul would have thought when they said, your nephew is here to see you. Why the nephew? Check out the providential care of God here. Because likely, only family would be allowed to go into the barracks to see Paul. Likely, in this culture, only family would be allowed to go see Paul. And some theologians even mentioned that his age and his sex was important as well. We see that in the words that he was a young male. He provided no threat and he fit the cultural priority. We see this here in the words, take young man. The only one allowed to get to Paul may have very likely been his young nephew who got wind of the plan. Now look at the providential power of God that comes next. This is the only reference, by the way, of Paul's nephew in all of the word of God. The only other knowledge that we have about this family, about Paul, is hinted to in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, where Paul suggests that he lost his entire family in turning to Jesus Christ, making the nephew's actions even more out of the norm. But God is in control of all circumstances. It's no wonder why Paul wrote in Ephesians, God works in all things, even a nephew. God works in all things according to his plan and his will. Now, the next providential part of this added on top of the nephew is this, that, that the, the Roman law and the commander that arrested Paul. Paul called one of the centurions to himself and he said, take this man to the commander. Now, it's not like Paul just said, hey, bring him to anyone you want. He wanted him to be brought to a certain commander. Now, why would this commander be so open and tender to someone like Paul? Notice God is moving in all of the details providentially. Well, the first reason why this commander was so tender and open to Paul was that the commander, we know, purchased his citizenship for Rome, and Paul was born a Roman citizen. You find that in Romans chapter 22, verse 28. Paul had his from birth. The commander had his citizenship from from purchasing it, which means this, that Paul outranked the commander in Roman culture. Paul outranked this commander. Now, we're not done here. Now, remember, he's in a giant hot mess. He outranks the Roman commander within Roman culture. And this is the same commander who arrested Paul and bound him and was ready to whip him. And it made the commander guilty of violating Paul's civil rights. Putting, by the way, the commander in legal danger. We find that in Acts chapter 22, verse 29. 
it is with these details that we now understand that, he out, that Paul outranks him and he has violated Paul's rights. Why the commander was so receptive to Paul's young nephew, hence the words, and I like this right here. The commander took the nephew by the hand, pulled him aside, and began to inquire of him privately. This is not standardized operation of procedure here. But he's open for these reasons. My friends, let us remember last week, every detail that Paul has, has gone through has created a mess in his life. When Paul's life and dreams were like ashes at his feet. Remember last week, we looked at the one word from Jesus, Tharse, be strong, don't quit, I have a plan. Don't let that detail slide. Everything that was going wrong, God was providentially using right now to do something that Paul could never do. God was using his mess to do what Paul could never do. My friends, what Saul saw as setbacks, God was using as setups to do great and mighty things. There is no such things as coincidences with God. There is no such thing. He is providentially in charge of everything. There is never a time when God is not providentially using everything in your life, whether it be good things or whether it be bad things, to do what you could never do yourself. Now grab this. Paul wanted to go to Rome to visit the church and to share the gospel. We find that in Romans chapter 1, verses 9 through 10. By the way, a little interesting detail. The road from, from, from Jerusalem to Rome that went through Caesarea was one of the most dangerous routes in all of the ancient world. It was filled with many terrorists. It was filled with many zealots and and many murderers. In fact, we read of 40 of them right now. 40 of them in this passage alone. Now, see the Lord's providence in using Paul's setbacks here. He's using them as setups to accomplish things beyond Paul's control. Take a look at this. The commander, who is very tender because of the legal danger, and, and Paul outranks him, and the nephew coming in, it says this. Uh, let's hit the next button, because there it is. He says, get 200 soldiers ready by 9 o'clock tonight. Through the night, get to Caesarea with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen, and also give him some sort of mount, it's likely a horse, but it could be a donkey. It just says a mount in the, in the Greek. And put Paul on it and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. Now, I love this. This gets really interesting here. Because of Paul's messy life, God used, used it to provide 470 men to escort him to Caesarea. And gave Paul a horse to ride on. How much protection would Paul have had? And how many horses would he have had if he did not have a mess in his life right now? Let me push it a little bit further. We'll do a little math, all right? I love math. I love numbers because numbers never what? They never lie. I don't think so anyway. Let's do the math. Forty men want to kill him. 470 men are provided to protect Paul. God provided a royal horse and a ride of protection that outnumbers Paul's adversaries 12 to 1 and provided passage through one of the most dangerous routes in the world at this time. My friends, does not our Lord channel the hearts of rulers as he pleases like water in his hands? Paul leaves Jerusalem more like a king than a criminal. And his enemies are left in town with insistent hunger pains until their appetites were larger than their pride. 
This is what the providential power of God can do with what we call a mess in our lives. My friends, God is in the business, and if you would agree with this, and if you want to agree with this, because I'm going to tell you, it's from the Word of God, all right? My friends, God is in the business of taking our messes and making them into masterpieces. Amen? He controls all things. So don't get down. Get going. Get trusting. Get working. Oh, the old-time pastor Henry Ironside said it best. God is never closer than when you cannot see his face. And it gets better. You see all the providence going on here? The nephew, the commander, the, the legal tanglement, uh, outranking him, uh, horses, dr- 12 to 1, all this protection, things that could never, Paul could have never done on his own. It goes further than this. How many here love history and historical background? Amen? Oh, to know the context. In fact, we are about to, to, to recite a verse you have known and memorized your entire life and see it in a different context. The right context. Grab this, because context is king. They bring him to the governor and asked him, and asked what providence Paul was from. There it is. Now I want you to grab this. What providence was Paul from? You see, the reason the governor wanted to know this is because where Paul is from would determine whether or not Felix had jurisdiction over him. Now, since Paul is from Cilicia, we know this, the governor not only had jurisdiction, but he couldn't kick the can to anyone else. He was responsible for this case, i.e., you see there in the flashing, I will give him a hearing. Now, how is that? Well, we see some providence in that. What providence is he from? He's from Sicilia. Oh, he comes in and horses and all this protection. Now, I want to push the providence of God even further than that. We know from verse 24 that the governor's name here is Felix. All right? His name is Felix. Now, get ready for your spidey, nerdy senses to tingle. Are you following me here? All right, get ready for this. Felix is a former slave. Freed from his master who favored him. I love this here. Therefore, he was historically known to govern like a slave who had the authority of a ruler. He governed as a slave with the authority of the ruler. And by the way, because he was freed from his Roman master, he was very loyal to Rome and opposed anyone who threatened Rome. And you know what he hated most? It's, it's, it's written in, the, in, in Josephus' writings and other writings of antiquity. He said what he hated the most, you ready for this, is Dagermen. Who are these 40 men? Talk to me, church. You just see Paul. Hey, everybody. You know, I don't know how I, I would I would be flaunting it like a peacock. All right, how you doing? Now come on along. The guy who hates your guts is going to be governing our case. Oh, what kind of judge will we draw? A former slave who hates Dagerman. Is God not in control? What is it, church? Of course He is. He knows the number of hairs on our head. He, he is in sovereign of all things. 
He was known to be loyal to Rome and violent towards those who opposed Rome, especially zealots and daggermen. Remember what we, I asked you to hold on to here. Forty opponents were, were daggermen who were opposed to Rome. Here it is. Paul's setbacks are God's set up. Your setbacks are God's set-ups. So now, not only is Felix the one over Paul's case, but he is one who would favor Paul over the zealots trying to kill him. But Paul at this time, by the way, is no threat to Rome. He is a Roman citizen. Now, we see this preference already becoming visible. Watch the providence of God here. And Felix, a former slave who governs like a ruler who hates Dagerman, orders Paul to be kept in Herod's praetorium. Now, guess who lived in Herod's praetorium? Felix did. Felix lived there. Paul is going to have residency with the governor of Caesarea in the, 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 the king's palace here. This is the governor's official residence. It is his palace. By the way, fun fact, recently, archaeological, Dave Brandon, you might want to put this in your book, 44 something about something, all right? 44 archaeological sites, things you can visit in the Bible. Recently, archaeological evidence for this praetorium that was built by Herod the Great in Caesarea, was recently uncovered. And here's a picture of it. See, if you look at it, this is what they believe it looked historically. You see it along the shoreline there in that, that rocky area. And Paul would kind of have some time in this courtyard and spend time and all this. You can see it over here. Here's the archaeological evidence of it. Now, how does that change your life? Buckle up. Here we go. And now, we finally arrive in Caesarea. God used every messy detail of Paul's time in Jerusalem to get him to this point. In a family that disowned him, a nephew comes out of the woodwork. The only person who may have been able to get access to Paul within the barracks. I mean, and he used a commander who violated Paul's rights and outranked him and, and tenderly opened up the, 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 the opportunity for Paul's nephew to talk to him and in turn provides a royal escort. Through one of the most dangerous territories in all the world, Paul will be saved. God's promise will be preserved. The gospel will be escorted by 470 Roman soldiers. Oh, don't miss this. As Paul rides on a Roman horse, he arrives to a former slave who is loyal to Rome and hates Dagerman and is given a room in the palace, protected for two years, sharing the gospel to the highest levels of Roman society, something that Paul would have never been able to do if he, if all these hot messes did not exist. Oh, is it ever wonder why Paul will soon write to Rome, for I know that God causes all things, both good and bad, all things to work together for those who know God and love Him and are called according to His purpose. You think for a moment Paul didn't have this day in mind when he wrote this verse? You see, this verse is not about what you can do to God for God on your best day. Let me say that again. This verse is not about what you can do for God on your best day. This verse is about what God can do on your worst day. Amen? He controls all things. His power knows no limit. Brother and sister in Christ, your mess is God's paint. And he can create a masterpiece 
when things are not how you would have them to be, when your dreams are like ashes at your feet, God can take that mess and make it magnificent. But let us not fall into the trap and the danger that comes with misapplying God's providence. Just because God is constantly and intimately governing all things, both good and bad, by sovereignly directing everything according to his will and pleasure. Now, that doesn't mean that we are relieved of personal responsibility. Amen? We are not relieved of personal responsibility. When Paul's nephew came to him and said, Hey, I overheard something I want to tell you about. Paul didn't say, Yeah, no worries. I have a promise from God, so I don't need to do anything. I'm just going to sit right here and do nothing. No. He sent the nephew to the right commander, the right pressure point. Paul was active when it came to the things he was responsible responsible for. God's sovereignty does not excuse personal responsibility. God, here, I want you, if you agree with this, feel free when I get done with this one sentence. God can use your mess, but at the same time, we are to do our best not to make a mess. Amen? God can use our mess, but we have a responsibility not to make one. So in this passage that contains no biblical doctrine, no exhortations, and no commands of God, in just one fast-paced episode of law, Love for those who belong to him. My friends, let us be responsible for our actions before God. Follow his word. Submit to his teaching. And when things around you become a mess in spite of all your efforts, remember this. God did more with Paul's mess than Paul could have ever done himself with perfection. And he can. And he will do the same with your mess and mine. I want you to look at the areas of your life that are a mess right now. You try hard, you try hard, you try hard, but beyond my best efforts, or maybe maybe you just blew it, there's a mess. Each one of you know what that is. Be responsible to clean up your mess. Do your best to clean up your mess. But also remember, in areas that are outside of your control, I love this here, in areas that are outside of your control, you can rest in your mess. Because God is sovereign. And He will cause all things to work out for good to those who know, love, and are called according to his purpose. Is not our God good in the middle of this worldly mess? Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your providence. Thank you for your care. Thank you that we can rest in mess. Father, I pray that you would bless your word. the desire of our hearts. Father, bless these people. We pray that you were glorified this morning. It's in your son's precious name we pray.
Amen. I love you guys. You are dismissed.